Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Ray Christian. Hey folks, this is Ray Christian. On today's episode, you'll hear Brian Russell. Throughout all this, as we finally start to get to the climax, and I'm like, what did I do? And I really just want to go like, Wakanda forever! <laughs> that and more. But before that, folks, if you're wondering if this might be another guest-hosted episode of Risk, you bet your sweet ass it is. Ray, Christian, and I are looking right at each other on our computer screens right now. How you doing, Ray? I am doing marvelous 3,000 feet above sea level. How are things going down there in the big city? Oh, my God. People might not know. Ray is up in the mountains. Ray is a farmer with goats outside the window tonight. <laughs> yes, right. The goats are outside the window right now, letting me know that they know I am here and they want to eat, man. You can't hide. You can't hide in there. We hear you. Y'all don't have that in New York, man? No, all I have is a little feline friend who's doing nothing but napping right next to me. Well, I'll tell you, Ray, I'm so excited about this particular episode. I wanted you to host it because it's the fifth episode in our Black Lives series. Now, of course, you know, we've had lots of stories by black folks on the show over the years, but the ones in the Black Lives series are the ones where being black is what the story is about. And you have told some of the all-time classics that are in that vein on Risk Before. And I also wanted everyone to know that there's a lot more of those amazing kind of stories on your podcast, What's Ray Saying? Oh, yeah, that's right, Kevin. I try to use history, storytelling, and commentary to explore the black experience from a unique perspective. Sometimes the story is bigger than you and sometimes so big it just demonstrates how we connect to each other that's beautiful so don't forget that title folks you can search for it on your podcast player you gotta go check out what's ray saying we'll be right back knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling meeting new friends or just even to master a new skill but it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Well, all right, then. I'm going to let you take it from here, Ray. Okay. See you on the other side, Kevin. Now here's the show. Hello, kiddos. This is Risk, 
the show where people tell true stories they never thought they dared to share. I'm Ray Christian, and this is Bill Withers, remixed by Delicious Behind Me Now. Like we said, this week's episode is called Black Lives Five. You know, you can read a lot about people's history, but it's not the same as hearing their lived human experience through story. And that's what you're going to hear on this week's episode, Those Lived Experiences. In a bit, we're going to hear a story from Ashton Cynthia Clark, who's on Instagram at ashton.c.clark. Ashton is a writer and actor based in Los Angeles. I had the chance to uh, actually meet her a few years ago. Wonderful storyteller. Now, a little warning before we get to her story. There is an incident of sexual assault in the story that Ashton's going to talk about. But before that, we're going to start with a story by Jen Kamaro, who's on Instagram at JKAM611. And Jen is out of Washington, D.C., and this is her second time on the Risk Podcast. Jen tells a story that kind of reminds many black folks that we're not always in the club, no matter what level of personal success we achieve. So let's get to it. Here's Jen Kamaro with a story we call My Most Authentic Self. My expectations of high school were based upon what I watched on television. I watched a lot of Saved by the Bell, California Dreams, Clueless, So I was really looking for those lifelong friendships, you know, marathon phone calls, matching outfits. (laughs) Yeah. When I got to ninth grade, I had that with Jane and Jamie. We were the three J's and we were absolutely inseparable. When I was in high school, this is when we had beepers. So we would have different codes that we would like text each other so that you knew when to hop onto AOL because we had to all be in a chat room and talk about whatever random bullshit that was going on. My school had this like really elaborate like candygram program. So for every single holiday, you could send an anonymous candygram. So we made sure to send a candygram to one of the J's in a class where a crush was so that the crush would see it and be like, oh my God, who's giving her attention? We also had like the sleepovers where you didn't really sleep. So it was lots of like just staying up all night, laughing and talking, playing light as a feather, stiff as a board. Cause we also watched the craft. So we wanted to be witches as well. So we were doing lots of that. And uh, when we turned 16, we all had sweet 16s, which was a big deal. It was a big sit down dinner. There was a DJ and then there was a friend ceremony. You would call up each of your friends and then you would give them like a candle or a rose or a cookie or something. But you would basically just give like a nice glowing speech about the friendship that you have and how great they are. So we all did this. So all of us had our sweet 16s and the first like flower or rose or whatever was always the two other J's who were not celebrating their birthday. By the time we got to like junior year, we were thinking about college. We did not want to go to the same school, but we wanted to be in the same city because we figured, you know, we can have our own like independent fun at the colleges. And then once we like are past freshman year, we can all live together and have that shared experience. Now, I was the only child. So this was extremely important to me because like my parents were absolutely great, but they were parents. And it's nice to have peers who are your age that you can talk to because, you know, my parents, my mom was from Nigeria, my dad was from Sierra Leone, and they were super laid back and super cool. But, like, I just want to talk about, like, Billy from, you know, Homeroom, like, not about how I need to be a doctor, like, right now, and I'm only 17. Relax. So anyway, you know, junior year, we're gearing up to get to, like, the next year. My birthday is coming up in June. I hand out all of my invitations, and I had heard from one person, but I hadn't really heard from anybody else. I wasn't too concerned, because we were all doing the same things we normally did. You know, we were meeting up before class, going to TJ's after class, matched our outfits that week, because, you know, that's extremely, extremely important. That Friday, you know, we all hanging out and everybody says, oh, have a good weekend. I'm like, have a good weekend. And I'm like, they're going to do something. Because also all the shows that I watch, there's always some type of surprise. So I'm like, they're going to do something. So Saturday comes and I heard from one person and that was it. Sunday, I heard from no one. By Monday morning, I am absolutely livid. 
because I'm like, these bitches didn't even call me. My other friends didn't even call me. Like, what the fuck is going on? But then I instantly got like scared because I hadn't heard from them. So maybe they were hurt. And this was like way before social media time. So there was no Facebook or Instagram for me to like look at a timeline to see proof of life. So I'm just like, I don't know. They could be in a ditch and I have no idea what's going on. So I'm like, you know what? When I get to school, if they are not in a ditch, my locker better be decked out because I'm going to be pissed. So I get there. I go to my locker. It's bare. I go to where we normally meet up and hang out. There's nobody there. I'm walking down the hall to get to my first class and I see Jane and I I try to say hi. I look at her and she looks right past me and passes me. Like, that's weird. It was my birthday. Okay. A couple periods later, I see Jamie and it's the same thing. Like she just didn't even look at me and passed me. We had a class together towards the end of the day and I went and sat where we normally sat and they sat on the other side of the room and completely ignored me. So now I'm perplexed because I'm like, whatever surprise they're planning, um, this is going a little too far because, you know, like I'm really upset now. Like none of y'all are talking to me. So at the time I was not a confrontational person. So there was no way that I was going to ask them what was going on. I just kind of hoped, you know, it's high school. Maybe they'll just kind of be mad for a couple days and then they'll get over it and we'll have a sleepover like we normally do and things will be fine. The next day, I noticed that more people weren't talking to me. So now I'm very, very confused. Because again, it was my birthday. Like, shouldn't I be the one that's not talking to people? Anyway. By Wednesday, I'm like, I got to figure out what's going on. And there was one girl who was part of, like, the bigger group. And, you know, she actually, like, looked at me. So I felt like I had an in because nobody was even looking at me at this point. So I stopped her and I said, hey, what's going on? Like, nobody's talking to me. Nobody came to my party. Like, what's happening? And she said, everybody's mad because you called Samantha's boyfriend racist. What? Yeah. Everybody knows what you said. I, I, didn't, I didn't say that. That's what everybody's saying. And then she stormed off before I could ask her any questions. Now, I was the only black person in all of my classes from kindergarten up until this point. So the last thing that I was doing was calling anybody racist. At that point in time in my life, I wanted to just blend in. I wanted to just not be problematic. I didn't want to be one of those black people that only talked about race. So I wasn't saying anything about race. So I was just very perplexed because I knew I hadn't said anything. I still was perplexed as to why they would be mad at me if I did. So I started to think, okay, there's got to be something else going on. How can I get to the bottom of this? I guess I could talk to them. No, no, I'm not talking to them. That's scary. Maybe I could talk to Samantha. No, no, no. She's like the scary, scary one. And she's really pissed, apparently. Then it hit me. I need to hack into one of their emails. Now, this time was back in like AOL dial-up. So this was a very risky maneuver, but also a much easier maneuver to do during that time. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, you know, we had always joked, the three of us had joked about hacking into like, you know, the guys that we like, our crushes emails and whatnot. So like, we had talked about kind of doing this. And I'm like, yeah, I think I can do this. I think I can possibly do it. I just have to pick the right person. Now, Jamie, I knew after spending a lot of weekends at her house, her family was like loosely affiliated with the mafia. So I figured she was probably a little bit better at locking her shit down. And I also did not want that smoke from her family. So I was like, I'm not doing that. Jane, on the other hand, she just had a big heart. And I'm like, you know, I know her pretty well enough and she doesn't really care about locking shit down. So I started to think, all right, it's gonna be her. I gotta just pick the time when they are not together and they're not gonna be online and I gotta be swift because you know once you sign on to AOL, the door opens and your presence is loudly announced. So I sat down, I picked the perfect time and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I know she loves baseball. I know she loves Posada, that's her favorite person. She has like 50,000 shirts. It has to be his last name and the number. I type it in and it worked. First try. I get online and I instantly go to the emails and I start reading. And as I'm reading, I am just overcome with so many emotions because I am seeing so many different things. 
Like my chest was heavy and I felt like this knot in my stomach and I felt tears coming because I'm reading and I'm seeing number one, they're excited because the plan has worked. And the plan apparently was to drop me as a friend on my birthday. They had been planning for weeks to do this. Part of the plan was to spread this rumor to people that I had called this boy racist. So other people were in on the plan, and some people weren't even in on the plan. They just were really upset that I had called somebody racist. So that was part of the the wider plan. But the bigger thing that got me was that at some point over the past few weeks, these girls had discovered the word nigger. They were writing about me and my family and every other black person they saw, saying, oh, we have to go to that nigger's house this week. Oh, like, that nigger's family, it smells like shit in there with that fucking crazy food that they cook. Oh, I saw a nigger in the street. It was like nigger Mad Libs. Just all of this stuff. And I'm looking at the dates and the times, and I'm like, I was hanging out with them. We were spending time together. We were laughing and we were joking and the whole time this is how they were talking about me while also planning to drop me as a friend and cause all of this. So I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, what can I do? I can't really tell anybody about it because look at how upset everybody got because they thought I called somebody racist. You know, and this is before the time of screenshots and all of that. So I just like unread the emails that were, that were new and closed everything down. Luckily, there was only about two more weeks left to school, so I didn't talk to them, they didn't talk to me, and then we went into the summer. And I, I spent the summer just doing a lot of thinking about myself, and I realized that I had spent so much time trying to mute myself and my blackness to make other people comfortable. I had spent so much time just trying to fit in and be liked. When they would call me an Oreo and say, you're black on the outside and white on the inside, I laughed, and sometimes I made that joke because I wanted to be the cool one, the token. When I would go to their house to sleep over and I was walking in, they would say, oh, just so you know, like my parents are a little racist, but you're not like really black, so it's okay. And I was like, yeah, like I'm not like the black people you see on TV, because I wanted to be accepted by them. I felt unsettled and I knew that something had to change and I knew it was going to take time. I didn't know exactly how things would change, but I just hoped that at least if I was aware of what was going on, I could make small steps to just try to live a more authentic life and not try to just please every other person. I had my first opportunity to try this during the fall semester of senior year. I had a new group of friends and we're sitting there at lunch and the teenage guys are cursing each other out because that's what teenage boys do. So you hear one say, oh, you're a fucking pussy, and I licked your mom's pussy. And then the one boy goes, you smell like a fucking nigger. And everybody at that table busted out laughing as if that was the funniest thing they had ever heard. I looked at all of them, and I said, I'm going to see how long it takes for them to realize that I'm sitting here and they just laughed and held their stomachs, and you saw tears coming out of their eyes. So I'm looking at all of them, and then I, I locked gaze on the boy who made the comment. And he looked at me, and it was like he saw me for the very first time. His eyes got really big, and you saw the color drain from his face, and he started apologizing. Oh, no, 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 I'm sorry, I didn't mean it that way. How did you mean it? It was just a joke. What's the joke? What's the funny part of the joke? No, I wasn't talking about you. Who were you talking about? People who look like me? No, 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 it was just a joke, it was just a joke. I packed up all of my stuff and I left and I never sat with them again. Now that moment was probably one of the more traumatic things I dealt with in terms of just dealing with people in a high school where you are the only black person. But I'm actually happy that I found out all of those things because I knew that I had spent so much time trying to be something that I wasn't because I wanted people to be comfortable. And at the end of the day, people are going to feel how they feel based on their values, how they were raised, what they were taught. And for me, I feel like you can think whatever you want to think about me, but I want you to think it when I'm being my most authentic self. Thank you.
future of the Negro in this country is precisely as bright or as dark as the future of the country. It is entirely up to the American people and our representatives, it is entirely up to the American people whether or not they're going to face and deal with and embrace this stranger whom they maligned so long. What white people have to do is try to find out in their own hearts why it was necessary to have a nigger in the first place. Because I'm not a nigger, I'm a man. But if you think I'm a nigger, it means you need it. The question you've got to ask yourself, the white population of this country has got to ask itself, north and south, because it's one country, and for a Negro, there is no difference in the north and the south. There's just a difference in the way they, in a way they castrate you. But the fact of the castration is the American fact. If I'm not a nigger here, and you invented him, you, the white people, invented him, then you've got to find out why. if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues june's journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iphone or your android you are uncovering the mystery of june's sister's murder it's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great gatsby-like mansion Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. We're back. I was a young colored girl back in the mid-1960s. Riding the crowded New York City subway with my mother was something I did on the regular. If whatever we needed was not sold at the local A&P Foods or Five and Dime, it meant leaving our Upper West Side neighborhood a few miles from Harlem. We'd take this 20-minute train ride downtown to 34th Street or uptown 30 minutes to the Bronx, wherever the store was having a sale. Either way, it usually meant shopping for clothes. And I hated clothes shopping. Nothing in the children's department ever fit right or looked pretty. 
Nanny, my mom's stepmother, made fun of my fat whenever we visited her. The child has a gland problem, Nanny would declare as she plopped a spoonful of smashed squash on my dinner plate. My mommy was protective of me. I was her smart, artistic kid with the cat's eye glasses. She didn't see a real problem with my kitty fat. I was just a child. That gland comment didn't sit well with her, and she complained about Nanny later. Me? I choked back a sniffle with each taste of the hated squash. Now, in contrast to me, Mommy was short and thin. I thought she looked pretty in whatever she wore, even though her clothes were mostly from the discount racks. One time, though, she wanted to splurge on something brand new for us for a church boat ride. Mommy, why did you ever think it would be cute for us to wear matching outfits? So there we were, the church twins, in pink pants with pink and purple horizontally striped knit tops from an adult ladies' boutique. Now, the clinging fabric of the sweater looked lovely on Mommy. And then there was me. My pants, three sizes larger than Mommy's, wearing the same bra size as her. But I was a round 10-year-old, a beach ball balancing on thighs that could spark fire the way they rubbed together. Mommy was always so proud of me. I wanted to feel that way, too. But between nannies picking at me the fifth-grade boys who were beginning to stare at my grown-up chest, and some so-called friends who didn't miss a chance to sneer at my running, it was getting harder and harder to even like myself. So, on this latest shopping trip, like all the others, if it zipped or buttoned without a problem, I just nodded my head yes just so I could get out of those embarrassing fitting rooms with the multiple mirrors that stared at me like so many front, back, right, and left sets of eyes. On the way home from the store, Mommy and I were lucky to find spots next to each other at one of the vertical poles that went floor to ceiling in the packed subway car. They're called stanchions, I had learned. Now the alternative, grabbing the straps dangling above the seated passengers, was impossible for me and always a tough stretch for Mommy. I mean, she was petite, as I mentioned, only 5'1". Besides, strap hanging meant that you were knee-to-knee with the person sitting in front of you and could end up nose-to-nose in their lap when the train jerked too hard. It was icy winter outdoors, so I bet most people were grateful for the warm subway car. But not me. I hated my year-old red corduroy jacket with the beige piping, and I just wanted to rip it off. It made my body look like the bursting skin on an overripe pomegranate. That's why we'd gone shopping in the first place. But my new coat was in one of our bags, instead of on me where it belonged. And my double-knit leggings had gotten too small too fast. They overheated and itched every turn on my body, digging into places I wanted to ignore, more itchy than usual. The train went dark for a second. It does that sometimes. The lights flash off, then back on. That's when I noticed the man grinning down at me. He was swaying in time with the rocking of the train and stood right opposite me. His hand that I could see was gripping the metal pole. He was tall and skinny with pale eyes and a skinny blonde mustache too. Was it shock that made me just freeze when I felt fingers creep across my inner thigh? then begin to scratch at my privates over my leggings. Maybe I was too afraid of accusing the wrong man. It could be an easy mistake to make. The train was packed, and I didn't have the nerve to look down to identify the snaky fingers or look up to challenge his eyes. Did he think I looked pretty? Couldn't he tell I was only 10 years old? 
The heat in that stupid train was unbearable. I felt sick, disgusted. No, disgusting. No, I didn't understand what I was feeling. And even though I was deliberately glancing away, I could tell that he was staring at my face, continuing to grin nastily as he touched. Still, I just stood there, motionless and mute. Suddenly, without a word, Mommy threw herself between my body and the man's hand. She must have just spotted his long, whitish fingers creeping. Mommy's shopping bags made these crackling, crunching sounds as if they were helping to shield my body. At the same time, the train squealed and jerked to a stop. The man shoved through the crowd and escaped. Are you all right? Mommy whispered. She looked like she was in pain. I nodded my silent yes. We never spoke another word about it. Recently, I performed a reading of the 1619 Project, the book by Nicole Hannah-Jones from the Pulitzer-winning series in the New York Times. My assigned passage was the history of Celia, an enslaved girl who at age 14 was purchased by a Missouri farmer for the specific purpose of having sex with her. After five years of being raped and now sick and pregnant with the enslaver's child, Celia begged him to stop and warned that she would defend herself the next time. When the farmer attacked her yet again, she fought back and ended up killing him. Now, Missouri law stated that women could defend themselves against, quote, every person who shall take any woman unlawfully against her will, end quote. But the court ruled that Celia was not any woman. She was chattel property and therefore had no legal right to defend herself. Celia was convicted of murder and hanged in 1855. But not until after she gave birth, the child would become part of the dead man's estate, after all. The baby, however, was stillborn. I was sitting with this history for months, around the same time that the trauma of my long-ago train ride began to emerge. At first... I hated my child self for being so stupid in that subway car. Too chicken, too confused to scream. I somehow felt like I was responsible, like I was part of the crime. Then I wanted to demand, Mommy, why didn't you notice the groper sooner? And why didn't you talk with me about it later? But instead, in my dreams, I conjured this coil-haired, unknown woman many generations closer to my baobab roots of Western Africa. Perhaps her name was May, same as my mother's middle name. She would have been Mommy's great-grandmother's grandmother, maybe the last in our maternal line to bear a child while still enslaved in the Caribbean. I saw that child, a daughter, snatched out of her mother's arms and sold away. I cried that May wasn't able to confront the powers that controlled her life. May, I'm so sorry that you couldn't protect your child in any way, the way Mommy protected me. But now I imagine the pride my great ancestor has when her forever soul greets my mother's forever soul and all the women in between whose actions and memories echo with pain and with victory through my life. And I love my mommy so much for what I've since learned was her bravery. And when I allow her spirit to fill me, I forgive myself too for having been just a child.
This is Risk. This is Amethyst Kia behind me now. Before that, we heard Ashton Cynthia Clark, and before that, a little reflection from James Baldwin. Thinking about James Baldwin's words and what it means to fit in, perhaps the issue is whether or not America still has one more social, political, or military battle to fight to decide what direction this country is going to take. One more conflict, one more final battle to make that decision. Both these stories that we just heard touch upon that subject, what it means to find out that you're not really a member of the club. That realization that you are not equal. Now, one of the things we all thought might be nice to do is if I could check in with Jen Kamara and Ashton C. Clark to talk about their stories and more. The conversations are over at patreon.com slash risk. But here's a little sample of how those sound. You know, it's funny that you say, um, you, you know, you say your story of thinking that you were uh, like one of the little white kids. Because, I mean, when I was in elementary school, I definitely thought I was white. Um, and I, I remember we had to draw ourselves and I didn't paint myself brown. And my teacher like spoke to my parents, like she came to our house. And I remember that day my mom like lifted me up in, in the bathroom to look in the mirror. And, you know, she said, what color is my skin? Like pointing to herself. And I said, brown. And she said, what color is your skin? And I like, I didn't say anything. And then she's like, you're brown, like, you know, you're black. And I was like, oh, everybody else I see is white. I just thought that I was white. And she said, no, you're black. So, I mean, like growing up, it was like this weird thing with my parents where, you know, they were like, you're black, but they definitely wanted to be American. Yeah. You know, so they definitely were like, they, I, they didn't teach me their languages or any of that stuff. Um, and they were just really about like, we're here, we're American, you know, yeah. but they did want me to know that I was black. So I think I was kind of confused for a while growing up because it didn't really make a lot of sense to me. Did you find yourself in a position in school to be the spokesman for black people that, that, that your friends, teachers uh, put questions to big questions to you about black people in general when you were in school? Definitely when I got older. Um, and, you know, and like I hated when we started to learn about the Civil War or slavery or anything, mm. because mm. it's like everybody would look at me and, you know, and I just didn't want to speak at all. So it was like this thing of everybody looking at me, waiting for me to say something and then me just not wanting to say anything because I was trying to just like blend in and disappear. Right. But, yeah, definitely when I was older, you know, if there was anything that that related to black people, they would always like look at me like waiting for a response. You know, I started thinking about the fact that my mother was very shy. She never confronted people who wronged her in any way, not verbally. Um, but she rescued me in the story in during that train ride when I was being molested, she rescued me by throwing her own body in the way. And, you know, I, I just thought about, you know, my ancestors and the women in the story and that I would have had an ancestor like that also. We all did, you know, those who were enslaved many, many generations before and who would never have had the ability, the opportunity, the legal right to defend themselves or their children. And, oh my gosh, I, I'm starting to get right, teary, right. but that's how the story came about. That's how it came about. And, and bless you for telling it. I mean, the the historic connection is, is very, very strong. And, and one has to wonder, maybe... There is some certain uh, genetic uh, attitude or perception or a way of perceiving the world that has been passed on that has allowed certain people or women to endure the unendurable time after time. One assumes that if you could not withstand months 
of rape and abuse while traveling through Africa down to the coast mm. uh, on board the ships taking you to the uh, Americas, on the plantations, married or not married, with a man or not a man, during slavery, post-slavery, you wouldn't have survived. I know from some books like uh, Diary of a Slave Girl, there are lots of reference to the fact that, let's say uh, during the early 20s, in the beginning of the 20th century even, um, black women who worked uh, in domestic fields, maids, whatever, housekeepers, babysitters, uh, cleaners, laundry uh, keepers, if they were working for a white family, a couple, a company, or whatever, and they were raped or molested at work, mm. Back then, they couldn't tell this to their husbands. Because if their husband had any cojones, any balls, any nuts, any manhood, anything, he might try to do something about it. Exactly. And if he did, he would die. So don't miss those check-ins. Again, you can find them at patreon.com slash risk. Our final story today is by Brian Russell, and he told it at the Mystery Box Show in Portland, Oregon. So here he is now, Brian Russell, with a story we call Erection for Justice. That caught me by surprise. I wanted to giggle. <laughs> oh, fuck, man. <laughs> oh, golly. Erection for Justice. A hard dick can stop crying. Okay. I ain't gonna explain that one. The only thing worse than uncertainty is uncertainty and being alone. And that's where I was at the beginning of 2020. You know, recently laid off due to the pandemic and just fresh out of a relationship and being single, had to kind of put things back together and figure out what it meant. I was really lucky to have a small bubble and close friends, so I didn't feel completely alone. I had people to bond with, but that physical intimacy wasn't there anymore, and I missed that. And most of my life, physical intimacy has been the coping mechanism I used to get through the hard times. Thankfully, though, modern science was going to help that out soon because the vaccine was coming. So, you know, it was time for some Moderna and chill. Maybe, maybe, maybe a and j pajama jammy jam. So I was ready to see what I can get into. So I did what any aging, horny millennial would do. I went to the Internet and found a website with other, you know, hot to trot uh, hedonists out there. And after posting some pictures and having some discussions, I found some new friends. And we chatted a little bit and decided that we should meet up. They were a fun couple, uh, Cindy and Paul, and they invited me over to their house. And after a year or two of not experiencing any of that or not really knowing anybody other than my close friends, we, we set some early boundaries that this was just kind of be like, have some drinks, maybe something will happen, but it doesn't have to, like very casual. So I'm excited. And also, I'm really horny, and my dick is driving this whole situation now anyway. So, <laughs> so I, I'm looking into it and getting ready to go. They give me the address, and I've only lived in the Pacific Northwest for about three years, but in the time I've been here, I've been getting more accustomed to not only the geography, but the geopolitical, you know, of the Pacific Northwest. And when I figured out I was heading about 40 miles outside of Portland, I was a little concerned because I know, <laughs> yeah. In Portland, you know, this is the, the liberal bubble and, you know, black lives matter here and, and there's rainbows and like we can feel supported. And I felt that, but as I headed further down the road, I started to see a lot more All Lives Matter flags and a lot of Trump 2020 and a lot more like Second Amendment kind of stuff. And I, by no means, I'm not taking your guns and I have nothing against people that have guns. 
I have a problem with people who use guns as a replacement for personality. Like, that just seems, I don't know, man. But uh, as I head out there, I get to the house, things get a little more rural and working class as they do. And I grew up in the Midwest, so these kind of areas looked very familiar to me. But it also kind of brought up some feelings, because I, I am biracial. My dad looks like Eddie Murphy. My mom is a red-headed Irish woman, and they just kind of took it all together and were like, Psh, that, yep, that's it. That's, I, don't, they don't, I don't look like either of them. But, so, but I, I am a, a black man, uh, just not the one you expected. Um, so I get a little uncomfortable when I get into those sort of places. And I get out there, I get to their house, their nice family, you know, normal, like everyday kind of house, knock on the door. And Paul and Cindy come to the door, this cute little hunting dog who's excited to hang out and play too. I'm going to set some boundaries of that dog, but he's a cool dog, we can hang out also. They're both a little older than me, uh, but let's be honest, I'm not a spring chicken myself. They're like 50s or so. Paul, the best way to describe him is he looks like he used to be like a big, scary, like Harley guy that somebody just deflated. Like, just, he's he's got like this salt and pepper, uh, like uh, Kenny Rogers kind of hair and a ponytail. And he's got these tattoos that at some point in his life might have been really cool. Like, it was like an eagle, it was all black and gray. At this point, it just looks like a Rorschach drawing that's there to test whether I'm sane enough to fuck this dude's wife. (laughs) Cindy, also, you know, pretty charming, uh, very hot to trot soccer mom kind of vibes. Uh, She had a little flannel shirt tied up, a little midriff and a, a cute little skirt and did just about everything she could to kind of bend over and pick things up or like do the elbow on the counter and... It became very apparent she wasn't wearing underwear. Um, I enjoyed the view, but soaking up the whole view of the house too at that point, it, this is, uh, the house is you know, mid-80s wood panel. It's just classic middle-class Americana. But there is something about the house that's a little odd compared to most, is this whole left wall just decorated with knives. Like, so many knives. Like a wall, just, and, And they're all on these little plaques, you know, like wood print this and like woods that, just daggers, six inches, so many knives. I should leave. That's a lot of knives, but it's been so long. I'm not going to get cock blocked by a wall of knives. So let's just, let's just go. So we're sitting on the couch, you know, like, I mean, you know, patting the dog. He's hanging out too for a minute, but he goes away. He's really friendly. And Cindy comes and sits right next to me, and Paul's kind of on the other couch adjacent. We're all talking, having a drink, talking about how the year goes. Things are getting a little flirty, and I can feel her thigh against mine, and I haven't felt anything like that in so long. Uh, and I feel her hand, like, on my thigh, and, and then on my inner thigh. Like, no other hand except mine has been there for quite a while now, I can assure you. And it almost a new feeling. It's been so long. I'm excited. And then, you know, Paul's just kind of like, take it out and show it to her, which is a little gruff. Um, you know, like, do you want to see it? And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, okay. And I take my pants down. And, and I'm erect. It's, it's been a minute. You know, I'm very excited about what's happening today. And, uh, and she grabs my penis, like, by the base. And I feel a soft hand that's not mine. Uh, and I, and it, goes into her mouth, and I feel this warm mouth and soft lips and a very nimble tongue, and I'm so excited that with all of this, I just kind of arch my back, and I look up, and I notice one of the decorations I didn't see yet. <laughs> this knife in the corner actually has a Confederate flag behind it, and, and a little band that says CSA, Confederate States of America, which as a biracial kid who grew up in the Midwest, that means not my fucking friend. And, but, so, maybe their grandfather gave it to them. Maybe they just got it from the home shopping network in a bulk deal. You know what? I'm getting oral reparations right now, so I'm not gonna dwell on the past. Let's focus on right now. So, 
<laughs> things move forward as they do, and, and we head off into the bedroom, and there's been sort of, you know, some rules set at this point, too. Uh, no kissing. There's their special thing for just them. I, I respect that, and I'm horny. So we're in there, and Paul is filming, uh, you know, with his phone and kind of cheering me on, and, and we're just having fun, and as people do in the bed, and at this position and that position and that, and it's great, I guess. I mean, I'm here now, and I kind of thought this is what I wanted, but, I mean, it's fun. So, you know, we get to the end. Ah, that, that felt great. And as the... <laughs> As the blood rushes back to the places where I make better decisions, I'm like, hey, you're in a house full of knives. Like, time for an Irish goodbye or a French exit. Like, you should probably go. So I'm near the door, like, finishing up my drink and, you know, petting the dog, which I probably should wash my hands first. It didn't seem sanitary to touch the dog after all that. But as I'm, you know, saying goodbye to my, my little furry friend there, they're talking, and Cindy says... Yeah, it's friendly dog. He's so friendly. He loves everybody, but that dog hates spicks and niggers. They don't know I'm black. <laughs> and, I mean, it's not my job to disclose that. Nobody certainly told me they, you know, they were racist before I got here, so... So, I'm like, oh, man, you know, and it, what, do I, what do I do about this? And at this point... I kind of feel this stirring, like I haven't felt before. Like I, I'm not turned on. I'm like, I'm actually angry. I'm developing like an angry erection. It's not like an erection for justice. Just like standing defiantly in front of all of your weird nationalist bullshit. Just so I grab Sydney by the hand and just kind of whisk off to the bedroom. And we get in there, and he's very much in this cuckery position, watching and cheering me on and, and filming. And, you know, people say sometimes that, uh, you know, it helps uh, guys last longer to, like, think about baseball or think about this. And I have Cindy bent over and just butt up in the air, and I'm just imagining, like, Ben Shapiro looking in disgust as I just, just... <laughs> going. And... Throughout all this, as we finally start to get to the climax, and I'm like, what did I do? And I really just want to go, like, Wakanda forever! <laughs> but Paul interrupts my black boy joy and says, come on her face. Now, I'm not one to take advice from a bigot, but <laughs> sounds fun, so... Pop the condom off, and I come on her beautiful blue-eyed Anglo-Saxon face right in front of her racist husband. And again, the blood is really rushed back, and they're like, hey, you need to go. So I kind of back up, and I'm just looking at what's occurring. And at this moment, Paul puts the phone down and comes over and puts his hand behind her neck and lifts her forward. And it's like very soft, gentle, beautiful moment. I kind of realized at this moment, too, as they're kissing passionately, looking into her eyes, that that's what I want. I want, I, I didn't come here for just this, like, dirty, weird, strangers, sex with the people thing. I wanted that intimacy, you know? I wanted to kiss somebody softly, like, and as much as I want to get lost in this moment about that, I'm watching two racist people snowball my cum, so... <laughs> <sighs> So, I, I'm definitely tempted fate enough. It's time to get the fuck out of here. So, put on my pants. Nice knowing you guys. I get in the car and I'm driving home. And I start to have this deep thought thinking about it. Thinking about how comfortable we're dropping the N-word. And how, like, being the type of biracial that I am. Just sort of, like, my race being so ambiguous. Uh, people often call me passable. Passable is something external from me. It's other people deciding what defines me and my nationality. And, and it's crazy, but also it allows me to get into these spaces that like racist white people feel safe in to just kind of sit down and just 
get that like that Willy Wonka meme face, just like, oh, show me how racist you are. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so I was like, hell yeah, man, that's crazy. And so I grabbed my phone and I decided, well, I, I do want the last word in this. So I, <laughs> I, gra- I grabbed my phone and I text, I'm black and your dog's not racist. And although I never spoke to them again, I really do hope that at that moment that he looked down at his phone and noticed a message from me and maybe just sort of licking his salty lips. <laughs> he realized what, what I know and what would you guys all know, no matter race, creed, sexual identity, sexual preference, semen is semen. That is almost all for this week's episode, folks. This is the Pointer Sisters behind me now. And we just heard from Brian Russell. And Brian's story really illustrates that racism can go well beyond people's desire to enjoy your body. Even in that small area, there can still be racism. I love you, but I hate you. And I talk about this stuff and so much more on my own podcast, What's Racing? We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back. And that's about it, folks. Look who's back. Hey, Ray. What an amazing episode. And I'll tell you what a treat it was to have you stepping in to host it this week. I mean, the insights you brought to it, (laughs) I certainly couldn't have. Oh, man. I hope I didn't break the show, that it still works (laughs) when when you get back, you know. Sorry if I if I left anything, you know, dangling. I put my hand in your stuff. After after fourteen years, Ray came by and broke the goddamn show. You were you left stuff, man. Good God. You gotta watch where you step on a podcast. Uh, for sure. All right. Well, I guess that leaves just one thing to say, folks. Today's the day. Take, Take a, a risk. risk.